My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in this episode, we meet with a world-renowned educator, author, and speaker in the area of human movement science, Dr. Brent Brookbush. Brent has a doctorate in physical therapy and is the CEO and founder of the Brookbush Institute of Human Movement Science. He's had a huge influence on my career. For those of you who have been following me for a while, you know that my approach to rehab and performance enhancement is to improve posture. But the idea of assessing and treating pain by looking at posture goes back almost 100 years. One of the pioneers in the field was a neurologist and physical therapist named Dr. Vladimir Yonda. Yonda discovered that certain muscles in the body are prone to becoming tight, while others are susceptible to becoming weak. And because muscles tend to become either tight or weak, the body has a tendency to compensate in particular ways. And he identified three basic compensation patterns. He called them upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, and pronation distortion syndrome. Now, upper cross syndrome, this is that forward head posture with the rounded shoulders and the hunched upper back. Lower cross syndrome, that's the sway back, that anterior pelvic tilt. And pronation distortion syndrome, that's flat feet and knocked knees. Now, Yonda also discovered that if you have one of these compensation patterns, then you're at higher risk for certain types of injuries. For example, if you have upper cross syndrome, then you're more likely to get headaches, you're more likely to get neck pain, upper back pain, and shoulder injuries. So through his research, Yonda was able to define and correlate compensation patterns in the body with specific types of pain and injuries. And so upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, and pronation distortion syndrome were our first predictive models of dysfunction. And that was a huge advancement in human movement science. The discovery that if you have a particular type of bad posture, that you're at more risk for certain types of pain and injury, and that we can reduce or eliminate pain by improving posture. That's pretty powerful stuff. But how do we improve posture? Well, if we think of bad posture as being a result of a particular set of tight and weak muscles, and we know which muscles are tight and we know which muscles are weak, then to improve posture, we simply stretch the tight muscles and strengthen the weak ones. Now, the terms tight and weak have evolved. We don't really use those terms anymore. But all of this is part of applied and clinical kinesiology, and this is what I learned in university. But I don't just use these predictive models for rehab. I also use them to enhance performance. And Brent and I are going to talk about all this and how posture impacts performance in this podcast. But we're also going to talk about how 
these models have evolved over the last 20 years, how our understanding of posture has really advanced during that time. And at the forefront of all that is Brent. Brent has worked tirelessly to refine and expand these predictive models. And he's developed his own models called upper body dysfunction, lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction, and lower extremity dysfunction. Now, Yonda's models were all muscular-based. They only included the muscles. Brent's models include all systems in the body that are involved in movement. So muscle, fascial, skeletal, and neural. And because Brent's models include more structures and tissues, they're much more effective at eliminating pain and enhancing performance. In fact, when I designed the Train Fully program, I used Brent's models to create the 20 routines. And this is a big reason why Train Fully is so effective at reducing pain and enhancing performance. Most of the golfers that go through the entire program add at least 30 yards off the tee. And I know that sounds crazy, especially if you've been working at trying to add distance for quite some time and you haven't really gone anywhere. But the reason Train Fully is so effective is because we use these powerful predictive models and we use a scientifically proven performance enhancement continuum, which includes release techniques, mobilizations, stretches, and exercises to remove the tight and weak areas in your body that are creating imbalances and restrictions in your movement and slowing down your swing. Now, this also improves your coordination and makes your ball striking more consistent. So if you want to learn more about this, either contact me directly or head over to trainfully.com. Now, Brent and I are going to talk about all of this. So listen in as Dr. Brent Brookbush and I discuss the relationship between posture, dysfunction, and pain, how posture influences our performance, and how we can improve our posture to have an immediate impact on the quality of our movement, reduce our risk for injury, and enhance our performance. All right. So joining us today, Dr. Brent Brookbush. Brent, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you. This is this is amazing. You got an amazing view of Vancouver. There. You're making me want to visit Vancouver. I thought I had a good view in New York, but uh, that's... Uh... That's a nice view. That's not too bad. Uh, before we get started here, I just want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, you've been a major influence on my career. You've been just a, a, a wonderful mentor, and your influence is all over the Train Fully Golf Fitness program. It's all over all all over my content, and so I just want to thank you for that. Oh, that's 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 awesome. I'm I'm just glad that we're we're able to do it and. Uh, you know, somebody I was I was on an interview the other day, and somebody was like, "What's the favorite your favorite part of your job?" And I was like, "The fact that I'm actually pulling it off." Um, <laughs> I like I had this like big crazy vision, and like the fact that we're actually successfully taking these steps towards optimizing education, and not in just improving the quality of content from like an evidence based standpoint, and some of the information science stuff with like predictive modeling and whatever but then like increasing access and decreasing cost making things more affordable like getting through the accreditation process with everything like the fact that we're able to pull it off i'm like wow all right this is happening you you are literally changing the world like you are revolutionizing the way that people look at human movement science and definitely the way people are learning it it's just remarkable yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, as far as like revolutionizing human movement science, I feel like I'm just another guy carrying the torch. There's a pretty long, uh, impressive history, you know, of people who've come in and like I've had the people that I've looked up to and, you know, like I worked for NASM. Well, the reason I worked for NASM is because I looked up to Mike Clark and Mike Clark had, um, you know, his, his idea of integrating uh, and systemizing a, a intervention approach was was a big step from what we saw before, which was close to that, but a little fuzzier with things like Sarman's movement impairment approach and, and Lewitt and you had Yonda who was like onto something with the upper cross and lower cross thing with like the modeling, but like then when it got to intervention, it got a little fuzzy. So, you know, all of these people made things more clear with each step Right. And now I'm just one more guy who's like carrying that torch to like try to make things a little bit more clear. And even I can see where I'm like, man, I'm probably going to burn out before these questions get answered because there's just there's a ton of work to do. There's a ton of room for improvement. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about posture here, and I think that most people don't really appreciate what posture is or don't really understand what it is. So why don't we kick it off with you explaining what you mean by posture? Yeah, there's been, I, I do, because I'm an educator, um, and because of what I do, I think about definitions. I know that's going to sound really nerdy, but how do you go about defining something? And definitions are a squirrelier topic than you might think, because you have connotation, and you have denotation, and you have how a definition is either analogous or comparative to some other definition. And so we see recent stuff in social media that there's no correlation between posture and pain. And that's really horrible because what people are really doing there is a word swap where they're going, okay, you have individuals like myself and Mike Clark and Yonda and Sarman and these people who came before us, Kendall, right? Who were talking about posture one way. And then you have these individuals on social media who are going, no, 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 no. I'm just going to use the definition of like stand up straight, you know, or you'll get stuck that way. Like my mother used to use it and, and beat up posture as it's been used by professionals as if it was that colloquial definition. Right. And so that's not okay. Let's, let's start there. That's just, that's just not okay. That is, that, that, that's not having good intent for improving practice. When we look at posture as professionals, at least those of us who are coming out of this movement, uh, movement science driven background, posture is actually almost an analogy. It's not quite posture the way you think of it, where it's like, yeah, I got to stand up straight or I got to sit up straight in my chair or I got to walk around so that I look confident. Like it's more like, okay, take that idea of, of better alignment right? But then let's move it over into the scientific world by saying, okay, when we talk about posture, we're going to talk about posture as optimal alignment of joints. Now that's arthrokinematic and osteokinematic motion of joints, right? So we have those two things. What controls that, which is op optimal extensibility and activity of our soft tissues, which is muscle and fascia, and then how the nervous system controls all of that, to ensure that that happens both statically, sitting up straight, standing up straight, back to our analogy here, versus movement, right? But 
realized statically and dynamically, alignment's still just as important. Like, so when we really talk about posture, and we're almost getting away from the term posture because of the controversy that keeps happening in, in the social media sphere and in the profession. Um, what it's really coming into is we're looking at posture as an ideal versus a predictive model of movement impairments. Now we get into information theory, but um, why, why is... Why is that important? Well, if I can use posture as an analogy of, here's what an ideal average posture would look like. And here are the common deviations from that ideal. Now I can start to see what are those common deviations and I can start trying to find the optimal approach for each of those deviations and refine it further and further and further with the end being optimal interventions for optimal outcomes, right? So posture, that, right? Everybody's like, wait, 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 wait. I thought we were just talking about standing up straight. And it's like, no, we're really, there's really two different paths there. There's the colloquial definition of posture. And then there's the way us, us movement professionals started using it with like Kendall, right? Back in the 50s and 60s and where it's ended up now. What's the relationship between posture, dysfunction, and pain? What is the relationship? Uh, again, so we have to take down all those things that I was just talking about and, and break each one of them down individually. So what's the, what's, the, what's the relationship? Well, we could say this. We know that certain signs, certain deviations from this, this average ideal posture. Certain deviations from that have a higher correlation. They are predictive of increasing your probable risk to have pain. Now, my rant lately in, as <laughs> at society as a whole has been that people really, really hate to think in probabilities Right, like we see all these people go, well, I know somebody who died from, so it has to be bad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Just because you found one outlier doesn't mean anything. We're talking about probabilities. So could you have really bad posture and no pain? Yes. In fact, we expect it. Right. We expect that even if something had a high correlation or a moderate correlation, def uh, now we're talking about scientific definitions of moderate or, or high correlation. Um, we are still going to expect a fair number of individuals, better than 10% of individuals who won't have pain. But if I told you that, like, if your knees bow in when you jump, you increased your risk of ACL injury by 70%, do you really want to take the chance that you're in the right. 30%? Yeah. Like, so that's, that's the relationship I think that we need to talk about a little bit more is we're not talking about absolutes, we're talking about probabilities. Now, and if I'm an athlete, and granted I'm not a golfer, I'm a basketball player, but if I'm an athlete, I wanna stack as many of those probabilities in my favor. Mm, absolutely. Because right? we know that if I, if, I, if I move better, I have a better chance of performing better, whether it's increasing my power, in my, in my case, first step quickness, in, um, in golf, maybe it's club head speed, right? Um, the ability to turn 
through your hips, turn through your low back, whatever it happens to be, right? You have that, that increase in power. And then we also want to take the other side of it, which is, you know, the decreased risk of injury. You, if you look at professional athletes, I can tell you they spend at least as much time trying to stay on the court as yeah. they do trying to make their on-court time better, yeah. right? Risk and injury prevention is, is everything. It's, it's, if you can stay out there, you're going to get better. If you get hurt and you have to take two months off, four weeks off, even two weeks off, especially with golf, because golf tends to be a fair weather sport, right? So you miss part of the, the, the golfing season, two, three weeks of the golfing season, that, that's a big chunk of your time. Right? And that's something that I talk about with, with people a lot too, is, is I, I don't want to make it sound like working out doesn't make you better at sports, but it does. But ultimately the focus should be on getting out there to practice. Practice is really where it's at. And your efforts away from practice should be sort of dictated or directed at improving your ability to practice. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about here, how I first learned how powerful the relationship between uh, postural dysfunction and pain was. So when I first graduated from university, I worked at this rehab clinic and one of my first clients, like within the first two weeks was this uh, long distance runner. And he was having this hip and low back pain that would kind of come and go. And when it was bad, it would keep him from running. And this had been bothering him for, I think it was like over a year if I remember right, this was 20 years ago. So my memory's a little off, but uh, by the time he came to us, he had seen his doctor, he had seen a couple specialists and they couldn't identify what structures or tissues were causing his pain and nothing that he had done had really been of any help. So I did an assessment on him. And I remember he had this pes planus and knee valgus on the side that he was having his pain. So for the people listening, if you think of like uh, uh, flat feet and knock knees, he had that on the side that he had his pain. And from university, I knew this as pronation distortion syndrome, right? From, from Yonda. And I also knew that this posture was associated with hip and low back pain. And so I asked him, had anybody pointed this out to him before? Nobody had. And so I was like, I think if we fix this posture, you'll feel better. And he's like, that sounds good to me. But I went home that night and I remember being so insecure about how something so obvious had of been no concern to the doctors or anybody else. And I was doubting myself and I was worried that he would go to his doctor and say, this is what this guy said. And the guy would like laugh at me or something. So I actually brought my textbook in when I saw him for the first session to show him pronation distortion syndrome. These are the injuries that you might have. And it made perfect sense to him. We started the protocol. Um, he got better rather quickly, but it always struck me as how nobody else seemed to care about that posture. Why do you think postural dysfunction is so often overlooked when it comes to pain and injury? Because uh, that's not how most of the medical model has been set up to this point, right? You're, you're actually talking about a pretty big leap. So for most of us, it would make sense that if we have low back pain, we should do what? Treat the low back. Right? right? Like that's, that's the obvious conclusion. That's where people think, okay, this is the highest correlation or the highest likelihood of having a correlation to what we're dealing with. And it ends up pain is not so simple, 
right? And it ends up the way that we develop a, a, a pain recognition or, or we start developing some of these inflammatory processes is not so direct. So where posture comes in and these postural models come in and like really the first one to put together a predictive model although we, I think we're probably the first people to actually use that term on a regular basis. The first person to use that uh, to create a predictive model was Yanda. That, that, that pronation distortion syndrome is a model. He's going, wait a second, I see a pattern here. And this pattern seems to be linked to this symptom cluster or this cluster of symptoms or this cluster of diagnoses, right? That's actually not such a small step, right? It's a little like, Einstein going, oh, by the way, right, this whole relativity thing can be derived from the Pythagorean theorem of all things, yeah. which it is. I don't know if you know the history of like that physics thing, but like that's a that's not a small leap. There's a lot of logic there, but like we're kind of doing the same thing when we go all of a sudden we go, oh, yeah, we're going to go and treat low back pain with this whole other correlated pattern, right? Now it seems a little bit more common. I think people are more used to seeing things like this because of like computers and because of big data and because of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is really good at rooting out those less obvious correlations. Um, so yeah. Answer your question. Yeah, absolutely, it does, and uh, I'm I'm glad you like you're bringing up the 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 concept of models because in university I learned about uh, Vladimir Yanda and his upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, and then and I was using those, had a lot of success with those, and then came across the National Academy of Sports Medicine and Michael Smith and and I'm sorry, yeah, Michael Clark, Um, and that sort of that was like an evolution on 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 Yanda. And then I came across your stuff and your, your models are, are much more thorough. They involve many more structures, which makes them a, a lot more effective. And the Train Fully Golf Fitness program is based on, on your models. Can you explain what these models are and why they're so effective at uh, reducing pain? Well, it's a, what is it? Uh, Aristotle, if I see further than those who came before me, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Right, like I wouldn't have gotten to where I am if it wasn't for guys like Mike Clark creating, you know, the the overhead squat assessment tables and me seeing the assessment tables and seeing the weaknesses in those tables. Right now, Mike Clark was smart enough to look at Yonda's stuff and see the weaknesses in Yonda's stuff for intervention. Right, so we just keep plodding along, carrying the torch to the next. Right, that Olympic torch analogy. Um, so where, yeah, I mean, going back. So I ended up in a small lecture of about 90 minutes that Mike Clark gave to the training and development team at New York Sports Clubs, which ended up being the framework for the corrective exercise specialist before the corrective exercise specialist got published. Well, my analytical brain jumped on the CES model. It was like, holy cow, like I can actually like logically, mathematically figure this stuff out. Now, over the course of years and years and years of practice, I start finding holes and I start having to develop other ways, other ways of thinking to try to find my way through 
these problems, you know, and for example, you know, the corrective exercise specialist is, is, is muscular based because it's personal trainer directed and you guys don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of access to like joint based techniques or nerve based techniques, or even like manual fossil, fossil intended techniques. Right. So it didn't take very long for me to figure out that like, okay, some problems are not muscular problems. All right, so how do we bring the joints into this? How do we bring joint stiffness into this? And then the next step, of course, figuring out how to create self-administered techniques that everybody can use, including personal trainers and, and clients at home, All right? And then thinking about, okay, how does fascia figure into this? How do, how does motor control figure into this? How does some of these theories about recruitment patterns like the uh, core subsystems, all of gleaming, how does this figure all this? And really what I'm starting to do is rather than deductive reasoning, right? Which is refine, 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 refine down to one answer. I'm going, well, something's missing when I get down here. So we need the other type of reasoning, which is inductive. I need to start bringing stuff in to start figuring out if any of these will have an application to improving outcomes. And you take the models, which Eventually, you know, my first big step was if you look at the NASM overhead squat assessment solution tables, the first thing I noticed is they're missing joint actions. It's actually a little weird. I still think it's weird. Uh, they say, oh, feet flatten, and they just list muscles, and you're like, okay, where did you get that list of muscles? So I go, wait a second. So we say feet flatten. We can actually analyze this. Feet flatten is excessive eversion. My everters are, those are short. My inverters, the antagonists are long, right? And then, okay, boom. Now we have osteokinematic motion and the muscles are listed. And this almost makes sense. It's getting clearer. And then you just keep building from there. Okay, well, what if I add arthrokinematic stiffness? Well, what if I branch out from short overactive, long underactive? So short, long, overactive, underactive, and I think about the other categories that could result. So long, overactive, short, underactive, right? Yep. Oh, that clears up the model a little bit more. It's almost like playing like Sudoku, right? Like you're just trying to figure out how all this stuff fill, fills in all these different boxes. And then you add subsystems in, and then you add fascia. In. And then I did the, and you know, I continually do this now. Um, this is a big part of my job. I went through all the research and we're continuously going through all the research to try to refine further that model based on third-party objective evidence. And then you get something that looks a lot cleaner, which is closer to where our predictive models of dysfunction are now, although I do need to update them. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it went. Like just slowly, bringing in the pieces there they make so much sense like especially i'm a kinesiologist so functional anatomy is 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 my jam and when i go through when i came across first of all the way you educate i came across your videos I'm like man this guy is like it's like a rock star for a human movement nerd right <laughs> it's like who is this guy? Listen to rock, okay <laughs> And then it makes so much sense because you're talking about joint actions. You're talking about like, yeah, obviously if you have excessive joint action, then that means the muscle that does that joint action is going to be overactive. And it just made so much sense. And I started applying those models and 
not only do people tend to recover rather quickly from their pain, but also the performance goes through the roof. And I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. So, uh, I was working at this performance enhancement. It's the same clinic actually, where I, I was seeing the, the rehab clinic. We also had performance enhancement side and we dealt a lot with, um, with elite athletes, some professional athletes. And as I was going through and kind of learning more about posture and, and dealing with the corrective exercise stuff, um, I was getting really good results with the rehab doing that. I started to think, what if I applied this posture stuff to like the athletes, they're not hurt, but what would happen if I applied this stuff to them? And it was like magic, like, especially the guys that had bad posture, their performance went like dramatically better on the same day. Like during the session, they got stronger and they got faster. Why does improving posture have such a dramatic uh, impact on performance? I think we can take it down to a couple pretty simple explanations. Uh, we probably could get really, really complicated, but let's talk about a couple really simple things. You notice that we don't use the term strong and weak, right? Because when we talk about muscle activity, right, we're talking about changes in posture. It's not like, let's say we're talking about knee valgus, your knees bow in. It's not that your gluteus medius is necessarily weak as much as inhibited. The muscle fibers are there. The muscle fibers may even have been hypertrophied to a certain degree. The performance is there, but your body is telling that muscle for some reason that it needs to tone it down. If we can solve the problem that is sending that signal to tone down and stop it, well, now the gluteus medius functions as it's supposed to, which could be a dramatic increase in performance. We're talking testing 30% better, 40% better on strength. Yeah. And it, like I said, the muscle itself didn't grow. The muscle itself didn't get stronger. What stopped happening is the inhibitory signal. So does this have to do, the way I imagine this when I was going through it is, is this then the muscle spindles, like the myotatic stretch reflex kind of got tightened with these muscles as they become adaptively shortened or, or what's, what do you think's happening there? Yeah, that, that gets pretty complicated. Um, so yeah, there is part of the muscle spindle mechanism is related to tone. Right now, this is tone in the technical sense, not like I'm toning my flabby arms. This is tone as in the, the static neuromuscular activity that every muscle has. Um, yeah, to a certain point, I guess you could say that short, overactive muscles would probably have hypersensitive muscle spindles, which might have to do with a shortening of, of one of those muscle spindle components. Um, that could be part of it, but there are, uh, there is arthrokinematic inhibition too. Like if a joint isn't moving properly and it's causing too much compression or some sort of inflammation uh, within the joint, that'll cause inhibition too. The, the classic example of that is if you've ever had your knee swell up, what happens to your quad? Just yeah. shuts down. I mean, it, it'll, it'll literally like shrink on you. Like it'll just look like it just yeah. collapsed on you. But is the muscle still there? Yeah, the muscle's still there. You just got to get rid of the swelling so that the arthrokinematic inhibition stops, right? Now, of course, swelling of the knee is a very dramatic example. What is likely happening when we relate to these postural dysfunction things is even the little 
changes within joints, the little changes within different muscles, the little changes within connective tissue tension, they stop being out of whack and stop sending those inhibitory signals, which allows the muscle again to function like it's supposed to, right? I think the other big thing that leads to performance, right? So in, inhibition is, is one part of it. The other thing is, is length tension relationships. So a lot of people forget that a muscle is optimally strong at its, at its optimal length, which tends to be in the middle of its contraction length, tends to be. There are muscles that don't necessarily work that way, but it tends to be in the middle of the muscle length. So if a muscle is too short, it will test weak, just as much as a muscle is long will test weak. So if we can get rid of inhibitory signals and optimize muscle lengths, right? And that muscle length having exactly to do with the amount of force a, a muscle can produce, all of a sudden when you go to do something, you're getting all of the force that your body has to perform rather than like, you know, trying to, to drive around with your brakes on. Yeah. What about the people that say, well, everybody's built differently. So everybody should kind of look and move differently. And all this corrective exercise stuff is kind of a waste of time. They don't read research. Like I, I can't, they're wrong. This is not a debate. Uh, I'm tired of having the debate. Um, there is a lot of cocky uh, young new grads who think they're on the evidence-based tip. And, you know, they they learned something in school and meanwhile, they haven't really spent the time going through the, the original research themselves. When you look at the actual research on structural variation, we're pretty much all the same, right? Now people point to a study and be like, look, there's variation, blah, 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 blah. Yes, there is variation within one standard deviation of a average range. So that, that really is the key. Again, this goes back to people want binary answers to probabilistic issues, right? So hip morphology is the big one that keeps coming up. There is absolutely no evidence that number one, changing your foot position has anything to do with your hip morphology. And number two, that we're all structurally different in our hips. What the research does show is that about 92 to 94% of us fall within one standard deviation of this range, which maybe let's say is 10 degrees of antiversion retroversion. Like it's within 10, 10 degrees, 10 degrees are tiny, right? We all fall within this little thing, right? You could probably, although the research hasn't done this yet, it's probably normally distributed. You guys remember bell curves, right? And the normal distribution. People wanna act like our variation between us is, two, three standard deviations apart. Like there's no normal distribution. If that was true, we would not be successful as a species. Like if you are as likely to come out with genu varus, structural genu varus, as you were to be normal, there we wouldn't. Yeah. If you are as likely to be, have a scoliosis as not, how would we, if you are as likely to be retroverted as normal in your hip, like how would we have made it as a species? We would have a bunch of dysfunctional individuals who couldn't perform. 
And what you actually find is most of us move almost identically. Now that's not to say that there isn't some variation, but again, it's, it's within this narrow average, right? Armenian, you built the same way. Well, not exactly, but do me and you move pretty much the same? Yeah, on, on a macro level, absolutely. Like if you look at our gait patterns, we pretty much walk the same way. And then you have to ask yourself, and this goes back to correlations and prob probabilities, which has a stronger correlation with changing your movement pattern? Structural differences or soft tissue changes, right? Which is more likely to be off? The six to 8% who have structural deviation outside of our mean average or the very common occurrence of having trigger points in your calf, um, losing some of your dorsiflexion because your calves are overactive, um, or losing some of your dorsiflexion because your tibialis anterior isn't functioning as well as it should because of those inhibitory signals that we talked about, or your gluteus medius is being inhibited because you've had knee pain in the last two months. You know, which of those has a higher correlation? And then what I really hate about this whole freaking discussion is their answer, right? Their practical application to this fight that we're all different is, by the way, you're structurally effed for life. Yeah, you there's nothing you can do about, about it. it. <laughs> nothing. So just go ahead and compensate and deal with it right now. You suck. You're going to suck. It's always going to suck. Rather than, okay, tell me which one of these is the more positive look, right? And they, the funny thing is they like to flip this argument. They like to gaslight light us and go, well, you're just labeling everybody as dysfunctional. No, you just lab labeled them structurally abnormal. I don't know how, how one of those is better than the other, but you labeled everybody as dysfunctional. No, dysfunctional is the way we refer to it as professionals. When I talk to a client, I go, here's some potential solutions or here's some potential exercises that might make you feel better. That's it. I don't label anybody as anything. And because I am convinced, because I've read the research, because I look at the research, that the correlation between soft tissue issues changing the way we move is much stronger than structural differences, I'm gonna use this whole bag of corrective exercises as potential solutions. There's gotta be something in that bag that's gonna make me feel better. And almost always, you know, from practice as I do, there almost always is. My, my favorite is when somebody gets into an argument with you on social media, and then you just list like 50 scientific studies. I've been doing this a long time. It usually stops the argument. The, the person just vanishes. Sometimes, sometimes they like to, you know, they keep the, the gaslighting thing up, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a horrible, that, that whole, we're all structurally different thing. If, so I, I kind of explained why the two approaches are, are, are diametrically opposed and why labeling people with structural differences is so hazardous, right? Because it dismisses this whole thing, this whole potential bag of, of tricks and tips, right? It would be like if you said golf teachers don't work. And so every tip every golf teacher ever said was just <laughs> thrown out the window. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's the, it's, you golf how you golf. 
we're all structurally different. So your swing is your swing and it, and it is the swing, right? Like, and you kind of go, uh, I don't think so. Um, oh, where was I going with this? So yeah, the corrective exercise interventions, like they're not, they're not hard, right? Like, I, oh, I remember where I was going. They're not hard, but you have to learn. You have to practice. And when I see, you could almost, you could almost call people out before it even starts. When you see somebody who's dismissive of a technique, dismissive of a modality, dis especially dismissive of an entire approach, you know what I see? Laziness. Yeah, they this don't understand it. Well, they don't understand it and they don't want to learn. Yeah. It's okay to not understand. That's okay. None of us have infinite knowledge, right? But this is excuse-driven intervention. This is, I don't want to learn it. I'm lazy. I don't want to study. So I'm just going to say it sucks because I, I don't use it. So it's got to suck. Right. Like that, that is the motivation there. Yeah. You know, and you've seen me also, I'm very honest about what I don't know. You know, somebody was on my Q and a the other day, you know, I do these weekly Q and a's on social, on social media. And somebody asked me about neuro, like they had a patient with CP. I'm a physical therapist. I, I learned about CP in school, right? Cerebral palsy. I learned about cerebral palsy in school, right? I did a clinical affiliation that had some neuro rehab involved, but that was, that was the extent of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's more about neuro than, than the average education a personal trainer gets. I mean, we're talking several semesters of class and we're talking about actually working for several weeks in that environment, but still at the very least, I know so much less about CP than I know about everything else in my wheelhouse. I won't even make a recommendation because I know somebody out there is better at it than me. Right. Even, even this last weekend, right? So I, I pulled my hamstring. In, remember, we're talking probability. So the fact that I pulled my hamstring is not evidence that I suck and my whole approach sucks, <laughs> right? I'm 40 years old trying to get back on the basketball court after COVID. Um, like the fact that I had a mild hamstring pull is probably not all that bad, but I go and see another therapist outside of myself, right? Because obviously I missed something. Now, when I go to this therapist, her name's Ginny. She's a good friend of mine. Um, she uses a different approach than I do. Do I go and question everything she does? Maybe out of curiosity, but I don't, I don't second guess her, I guess is the, is the, is the, the thing. Right. Like she knows some stuff that I don't know. Right. Right. She does like pelvic floor therapy and she does like, which of course the fact that she does pelvic floor therapy gives her a little different understanding of the pelvis and the lumbar spine. And she found some stuff going on with my hips that I hadn't considered, you know, the difference between the people on the internet dismissing all of corrective exercise and me is I don't dismiss Jenny. I'm going somewhere in there is probably my next video on right. brookbushinstitute.com. Somewhere in there are applications that I haven't thought of yet. And you and do that, you do that a lot in, in a lot of your videos where like one of the reasons why I wanted to give credit 
to you before we started here is because you do that yourself. If, if somebody, if you learned a technique from somebody or at a workshop, you always point that out. And I think that that is something that a lot of people try to take things as their own, like, oh, uh, I know this and I made this up. And, and somehow it's a sign of weakness that you learned it from somebody, which I never understood. <laughs> like, it, it's a great thing to learn things from other people. Yeah, it's it's ego. It goes back to this, like, and it, it is, and it is related to this excuse-driven thing that we were talking about, right? Where you have, I know this, it's mine, I created it, and everything I don't know or use sucks, <laughs> right? Because because I'm the best, I'm the man. Listen to me, right? And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Life doesn't work that way. The reality is, you know, that there are there's a lot of stuff out there. And it's the amount I've, the amount I've created from an exercise standpoint is really pretty small compared to our entire library, right? Like I'm teaching joint mobilization techniques. I mentioned a couple of additions to joint mobilization techniques I made. I didn't come up with joint mobilization techniques. They've been around for almost a hundred years. That's a lot of time to refine a technique. The fact that I came up with anything different is actually kind of surprising to me, right? Same thing with the corrective exercise and the activation exercise. You know, um, one thing that you see that's ubiquitous across our activation exercises is the reciprocal inhibition of overactive synergists. Yeah. That's not my idea, though. The first time I saw anybody try to reciprocally inhibit an overactive synergist was Mike Clark using extension during a gluteus medius activation to inhibit the TFL. What I did was go, why not do that with all the exercises, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then that, that came up with me creating some new activation techniques. Well, not new activation techniques, but new modifications on activation techniques, right? But again, why, why would I take credit for for stuff that's not mine like that that's not how you get forward and i think if there's a lesson to be learned from this little five minute statement is if you think that the road to innovation is dismissing everything now and trying to generate things out of your head right <laughs> All you're going to do is spend a lot of time reinventing the wheel. How common is postural dysfunction and how, do, how does it develop? Uh, I would say prevalence is, okay, we, got, we have to be careful because I don't want anybody to be like, you're labeling everybody as dysfunctional. <laughs> um, I would say postural dysfunction is ubiquitous. From my standpoint, from what, I, from what I've gathered, Here's, here's my hypothesis, and this is truly my hypothesis, and I'm not trying to take credit for something. I'm actually trying to separate what I'm about to say from anything that people might think is out there as a fact. No, this is, this is my hypothesis on what I've seen. What I think happens in the human body is we have our optimal motor patterns, right? We have those motor patterns that we use that are perfect and they're supposed to do exactly what they do. And that's that learned motor pattern, great. But as soon as fatigue or injury set in, we have to have a secondary motor pattern, right? Otherwise we would use our optimal motor pattern 
get injured or fatigued and stop moving altogether, at which point the saber-toothed tiger eats us and we die out as a population, right? So we need this secondary movement pattern. Backup plan. A back, it is. That's exactly it. Now, I think what happens with the human body is the human body is good at going from optimal to backup plan. It's not as good as going from backup plan back to optimal. And so over time, again, these are probabilities, right? When you stack the ability to go from optimal to backup is easier than backup to optimal. You end up with this bias hmm. towards backup. Yeah. And then of course that starts rewriting some of the motor patterns up here. And once things get rewritten up here, it takes a long time to work them back out. Right? So, which is one of the reasons why even in rehab, corrective exercise is mandatory. But one thing that I will uh, take a very harsh jab at, one of the few things that I will take a very harsh jab at of my colleagues, because you know, I'm a big fan of all my colleagues. I just want to help. But if they don't give home exercise programs, if they're not working towards self-management, they suck. Um, and the reason being is like you're totally forgetting that if there's a motor pattern written up here that was the compensation pattern that was correlated with their symptom cluster and they don't have months of reinforcement, it's just going to go back to what's written up here. It takes a long time to rewire this, right? So... <clears throat> To answer your question, postural dysfunction is ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous because those backup plans are a very necessary thing, right? I would say that the positive to come out this is they're not that hard to work out of, relatively speaking. You don't need surgery. What you need is just a little corrective exercise. And if you start a habit of making corrective exercise as part of your workout routine, which we all know we should be doing, Right, I know most of the population still hasn't quite caught on to this bug of exercise yet, but if we just make corrective exercise part of exercise, right, we would see, I think, I think we would watch orthopedic pain in all of society come down by double digit percentages. I think we'd watch surgical interventions come down by double digit percentages. I think it could be absolutely incredible. It's just, uh, so yeah, figuring out how to get that to happen. Given how powerful this stuff is, posture can be, how do you, when you look ahead 10 years in the future, do you see it being like the main thing in the fitness industry? No. No. <laughs> no, I'm pretty, yeah, like I'm an optimist about a lot of things. Uh, no doubt. I'm a technology optimist. I think we're going to work our way out of this. education. You know, you know, my big thing is education. Uh, you know, I'm all about increasing access. And like one of the things I'm trying to do is literally make it possible to get a master's degree on an app from your cell phone, one to four hour courses at a time, earning credit as you go for $19.99 a month. Now, I'm trying to make that happen. That's great. I'm not the only one. That's the crazy part of that one. I'm not the only one. It's just not happening in our industry. It is happening in other industries already, which is very interesting. So I think I look at education, I'm a total optimist. Um, I think I look at technology and of course, how can you not be an optimist about technology? We keep making things cheaper 
more convenient. Your cell phone has more power in it than like, does anybody remember like what life was like before their smartphone? Like you couldn't just call anybody, text anybody anytime. Like you couldn't just pay for things anytime. You had to like go to the bank and deposit checks and like Amazon, like basically leveled the playing field of cost. So for the most part, if you're shopping on Adam, Amazon, you know more or less within a couple bucks, you're getting the right priced item. It used to be people would gouge you for tons of extra cash, right? Because you couldn't compare things side to side. So you look at technology, I'm a total optimist. And then we get to the fitness industry. And over my career, which I've now been in fitness since 1998, I was actually in the first OPT class for NASM. I was in the last class before my clerk came on and the first class when he came on. Um, weird scheduling there. Um, anyway, so the fitness industry in that two years, two decades, I'm sorry, seems to just keep circling. We talk about wanting to things to be better and then we jump on some new fad. We talk about things that we want to be evidence-based and then we go back towards binary thinking, right? And we find ways to dismiss research altogether. We start talking about corrective exercise and now you know, as we're talking about, corrective exercise is enemy number one in the strength coach world, right? So not that I, I still haven't figured out what a strength coach is, by the way. Um, I know what a personal trainer is, I know. <laughs> Strength coach is such a weird professional title. I still haven't, what's a coach? Um, anyway, that aside, I mean, and it, that, it's not that I don't like strength sports. Don't get me wrong. I love strength sports and I love athletic training. And just, you just see these like giant swings. It's almost like fitness has its own little internal political system, right? And without getting political, I, I, if you guys can take a step back from your own personal politics and just look at politics as a thing, what do we see in politics? We see huge swings, super liberal, super conservative, super liberal, super conservative. And you know what nobody asks, which drives me nuts about politics and fitness, which policy resulted in the best outcome? because that's not liberal or conservative. Both have had successes and both have had failures. That's a fact. I think we can all agree on that. But fitness and politics have this very similar thing where it's like, we just can't settle on rational evidence-based outcome-driven stuff. No, we have to go with our belief systems which just, just so everybody's clear, I care, could care less about what you believe. I could care less about your feelings. Like it doesn't matter. There is one reality, right? There is one thing that is probably going to give us the best outcomes the most amount of time. Again, we're always talking about probabilities. It's not going to be the best for absolutely everybody, but it will be the best for most people. Right? Can some people get away with never doing corrective exercise? Absolutely. But if we adopted corrective exercise as an industry, would everybody 
in general, will we get better outcomes overall? Absolutely. Um, you know, so going back to your question, do I see it happening in the fitness industry? I don't know. Do you see it happening in politics? Because <laughs> uh, I think the chances are actually similar there, unfortunately. I think part of what we're battling is human nature. Let's talk about the Brookbush Institute because um, you've talked about it a little bit here, but I mean, what you've done is really changing. You're saying this is happening in other industries. I, I, I don't know that. What I do know is you're changing the education system in the fitness industry for kinesiologists, for physical therapists, chiropractors, massage therapists. Uh, tell us about how you started this, what it is, and uh, when do I get my master's degree? <laughs> On that last question, um, <laughs> I can tell you we're like a year and a half into the accreditation process. And every time we have to submit an application, it's like, I wonder how many weeks it'll take them for us to get back or months, months. We just submitted one application to Florida. It took them three months to get back to us. I'm like, really? We're just supposed to sit on our thumbs for three months and wait. <laughs> okay. And that's, and that's accreditation in a nutshell, guys. Um, it's the hurry up and wait game. So as far as the master's degree, realize that we're working as hard as we possibly can. No doubt. And we will get there. When I can't give you a specific date, I am hoping for 2022. I can't promise 2022. I think it is likely. Don't, I can't promise. Um, so I'm sorry, what was your other question? Just tell, tell us about the Brookbush Institute. How, how did you come up with the, the idea for, for doing education this way? Mm, it's not really one idea, right? It's, I taught for a really long time and I started having issues. As you can tell, I have my, my things, my rants that I get on, right? So I started having little issues with things I saw. Like there's a lot of smart people in the fitness industry who can't teach. And don't get me wrong. I don't mean that they can't stand in front of a room and say stuff. I'm saying they don't actually think about how do I say this in the best possible way to improve retention, comprehension, and application? They're not thinking about education as a science, lesson plan development as a science, presentation skills as a science to increase engagement and again, retention, comprehension, and application, right? So that was part of it. Uh, the evidence-based thing, I mean, that's part of it, right? Like we're the first organization to go, we're gonna build every course on a comprehensive review of all available relevant research. Holy cow. We're talking thousands of research studies. But that needs to be done because the change in accuracy is significant enough that it will improve outcomes. And if that foundation gets laid down, we'll also be building from a better place, which I think is part of why we keep ending up in circles in the fitness industry is because we're not evidence-based. So people feel like they can just move around and pick on different things because they're not building from any sort of foundation. Oh, we're going to go back to the lower ab myth again. Why? Because I guess we forgot about the fact that there's, you know, a dozen research studies out there that show that that doesn't work. But until we put those research studies in everybody's face, we don't have that foundation. And then you get into all the other stuff. The monthly membership model. We fell into that. I, you know, that was, I had a bunch of content online. 
uh, I had created a, a consulting company and then I had created a workshop company and workshops are really hard to make profitable. Um, the, the acquisition costs and the overhead costs on workshops, like it's tough, right? So when you see anybody offering live workshops, you know, give, give them a little credit where it's due. Um, so I started like going, okay, how are we going to make some increased revenue so that we can keep working on these education projects? And so I gated content. Um, well, little did I know, I was like way ahead of the curve, right? Like I did that seven years ago. And now all of a sudden, like everything's on a monthly membership model. The fitness industry is trying, there's a couple of people now trying to come around, but we're way ahead, right? And who am I looking to? It's not the fitness industry. My idols, Netflix. That's who I'm looking to. Oh, I'm going, Netflix is killing. And wait a second. And I think this is, I, I, forgive, my, forgive my use of this term because I don't think of myself this way, but um, I think where my genius is, is not being dependent on the fitness industry for new ideas. Right, so I look at like Netflix, I look at Amazon and I go, holy cow, Netflix as a content delivery system is the best thing we have ever seen. User interface, fantastic. Getting you to watch the next show. Can you imagine if I could get people to binge learn <laughs> the entire series of courses? <laughs> like I just start thinking and I'm like, Oh my God, they have this all figured out, right? If I could get you to just be like, dude, I spent my entire Saturday with popcorn and activation courses. Like that would be, <laughs> can you imagine if like I could get our interface so affordable, and so easy to access, removed so many obstacles that people were taking an evidence-based education like that? Yeah. Like that, that is where things get crazy. Um, and when you look at these companies, there's no reason why education shouldn't have been moving in this direction. Now the membership model is way more complicated than people think it is. I could teach on, on what's often referred to as a SaaS model, software as service, but it's, it's the Netflix style membership model. I could teach on that model for hours. There's a lot of intricacies around the numbers on that model, but we did definitely fall into it. And I think to answer your question overall, which this, this little segment started with, it really comes down to, as I was going through my career, I built a list of things I would like to change. We can call them complaints. I had complaints, right? I write those down. And then my willingness to go, why am I looking at the fitness industry for ideas when so many other industries are already doing this so much better, right? I think those two things is where you get the Brooke Bush Institute to come together. And, and you can see we're very different than, than what's out there. You know, it's just like match my complaints up with looking at other industries who've already solved the problem and voila. If you're a physical therapist or if you're in school for some sort of um, health profession, become a member of the Brooke Bush Institute, brookebushinstitute.com, correct? That's it. Uh, and if you're looking for a golf fitness program that incorporates 
all of the teachings from the Brook Push Institute. You can find that over at trainfully.com. If you enter promo code GOLF10, you'll get a 10% discount. Brent, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, it was uh, a great conversation. I hope I didn't go too far into my rant fests. I love um, it. I do get passionate about this stuff. And, you know, that's that's the key. You just got to find something you care about and go after it. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. You too, man. Okay.